Hey there, Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about Afghanistan. And some other things, like the fallout from it and the geopolitical maneuvering of the countries around them. But really, just Afghanistan. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm pretty sure we all expected this. But uh, all that and more, coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. I called last episode's fat, but uh, I think we're gonna be here for a while. Uh, but we're gonna get into this rapid fire news. So the EU has refused to acknowledge the Taliban as the official government of Afghanistan. The Taliban have yet to issue a response, and they probably won't, cause they are de facto recognized by China and Russia and Iran anyway, so, you know, it's kind of, all the neighbors that matter are there, I'm pretty sure Pakistan will recognize them in a de facto means anyway, pretty shortly, so all the neighbors that matter, um, are already, are already recognizing them as a, as the government of Afghanistan, uh, and we'll sort of get into those neighbors in a minute, so, political disagreement between the EU and the Taliban um nothing will be done about this but you know just interesting to note now there's Ahmad Mossoud uh in Afghanistan Ahmad Mossoud the son of Ahmad Shah Mossoud um says that he won't give he won't hand over to the Taliban jurisdiction of the areas under his control now, Ahmad Shah Mossoud, um, the father of the guy we're talking about, he fought and led resistance movements. Uh, was one of the key leaders of the resistance movement against the Soviets during the Soviet-Afghan War. And now his son, Ahmad Mossoud, is stating he will resist the Taliban. We'll, we'll, we'll just see how successful he is in this endeavor. Um, maybe he will be, maybe he won't be, but, um, look, looks like it's going to be a pocket of resistance in Afghanistan for the time being. I don't necessarily know if he'll be able to win out in the end. The Taliban have demonstrated extreme patience with these types of things. Um, and he'd be fighting, um, a fair fight against the Taliban who won a war that lasted for 20 years um, that was not even close to being fair, so my money is still on the Taliban with this one, but, um, definitely a development in the domestic sphere for the Taliban to deal with now, as they go from being a guerrilla fighting force to a governing body. Now, they were that 20 years ago, so we'll see how well they are doing that now. It'll, that'll be one of the interesting things to look at, is how they govern uh, rather than how they fight, 
because that's the transition they're making now. Meanwhile, um, in Africa, there was an ambush in one of the conflict zones in Mali's border, uh, one of their border regions, uh, that killed. Oh, oh there's something over there. Uh, but it killed 11 of its soldiers and wounded 10 more. So this, these are troop, Malian troops. Is that what we call them? Malian? Mali troops? 11 of them are dead and 10 of them are wounded as a result of an ambush from the fight, from the militants, the Islamic militants that they're fighting. Um, meanwhile, the Chad, uh, that, that's the name of the country, Chad has recalled 600 of its troops from that same combat zone uh, and there were only 1200 of them there so they've withdrawn half their force from combat operations in the border region between Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso so that's the again the same area we're talking about where these countries are fighting it out the French have withdrawn some of their own troops from Mali as well uh, and all these withdrawing of troops and people didn't lose their minds about it and say that the disasters befalling these these fighters are the result of irresponsible non-interventionism. People didn't lose their minds. I envy these folks for being able to, you know, pull their troops out of an engagement and not have to deal with the people of their country going insane about it. But I'll get to more on that later when we talk about the big boy. Um, but anyway, Greece has extended its border wall, um, likely in anticipation of the way the human waves of migrants currently already en route to Europe from Afghanistan. Um, how they're gonna get there is a question yet to be answered, probably because Iran is like one of the few countries on Afghanistan's border that hasn't put up border barricades or any sort of real policing force along their border and have just allowed this to happen. So these people are moving westward. They're going to go through Iran, probably through Turkey, um, and then into Europe if they can get there. Turkey is doing their best to protect their borders now. They have troops on the border between them and Iran in anticipation of these migrants coming through Iran into Turkey. Ironically enough, now Turkey is defending the borders of Europe rather than bribing them to do it. They're just doing it out of their own self-interest because the Greeks have put up a wall, and now the Greeks have made the wall bigger. But I guess since Iran's the only country that hasn't put up, you know, any resistance on its borders, it's the only direction these migrants can go, because Russia locked that shit down real quick. They stepped into Central Asia and said, you're putting troops on this border. <laughs> and they complied. Turkmenistan didn't, but Turkmenistan is an even bigger desert than Afghanistan is. I don't know if they're hotter, though, but even very inhospitable. So, but I do expect the Russians to either reach out to them in some way, shape, or form, or outright envelop them within the sphere. Or maybe they'll just leave them as a buffer zone, but I don't, 
I don't think that they'll be content with doing that forever. Um, namely because it leaves a loose end in a region that you don't necessarily need a loose end in. Because there's mountains on the other side of Turkmenistan. Those mountains being the mountains in northern Iran. So, why have a desert when you could have mountains? Hmm. So, they'll probably be the last piece of Russia's Central Asian acquisitions and reintegrations. But, um, the migrants are en route to Europe. Um, and a lot of them are being carried by plane now. Because as the other NATO fighters who were there are retreating by plane and taking hundreds of people with them. So, there's that. Israel, though, has carried out bombing operations on Hezbollah militants in Syria. And this has stoked some... Uh, this has stoked a combined warning from Syria and Syrian ally Russia. And what happened here was that six fighter jets that I, Israel used for this bombing operation, they took off and they flew through Lebanese airspace, right? They flew through Lebanese airspace before turning to do their strike in Syria, basically taking advantage of the fact that they're in Syrian airspace to avoid getting shot at. Uh, um, excuse me, not Syrian. Taking advantage of the fact that they were in Lebanese airspace to avoid getting shot at by Syrian air defenses. Um, you know, before they carried, before they fired the missiles. S but speaking of those air defense systems, um, those air defense systems have reportedly, and this is claims being made by the Russians, are that the Syrian air defenses shot down 22 of the 24 missiles that were fired by Israeli jets. 22 out of 24 um, Lebanon obviously isn't happy about this. Um, they've, they're, they're outright calling Israel a menace to society. And the Israelis are not having it. They're just, <laughs> they're just gonna continue flying over their airspace, dropping bombs on Syria. But the Syrians have air defenses. And the Russians claim that they took out, what, what is that, 90%? Is that a 90%? Close to, it's... 24, 2.4, it's almost 90%, it's, you know, almost, or is it above, you know what, um, the, the specifics of the math aside, the specifics of the math aside, uh, if we are to believe these reports of what these Syrian air defenses are capable of, and we look at who they're getting those air defenses from, uh, big boy Russia, we might start to ask ourselves, is Russia planning to do to the Israeli Air Force what they did to the Ukrainian Air Force? And for those who don't know, the Ukrainian Air Force uh, ceased to exist shortly after Crimea happened, the, the Crimean annexation. So... If these air defenses have actually shot down the vast majority, an overwhelming majority even, of the missiles fired from Israel's jets, well, that would effectively render Israel's air force null and void at that point. 
and that's without even shooting at Israel's jets themselves, which wouldn't necessarily cause Russia to be at war with Iraq um, and with Israel, as much as it might cause Syria to be at war with Israel. But then, but then you'd be talking a war where Israeli air power is nullified, and you have to go by land during a time when you're fighting rebellion at home during a time when all of your neighbors have turned their backs to you a war like that would be disastrous for israel i'm not entirely sure they'd be able to win against all of their neighbors like they have in the past especially when the main neighbor that they'd be fighting is backed by russia uh just russia alone let alone the fact that syria would also be backed by iran in this, in the event that would happen. So, thing definitely things that Israel should probably tread carefully on, uh, and they'll probably just maintain the status quo and pretend this never happened, rather than try to escalate. Uh, well, I guess firing missiles at somebody is a very great escalation. Um, but they probably won't go any farther than this. They certainly won't be striking any officially Syrian targets as much as they'll be striking Hezbollah targets. So, friction that probably won't lead to war unless there's an escalation. But that being said, escalation in instances like this can be pretty easy. So we'll just keep our eyes out for this. And keep our eyes out for what the Russians and their air defense systems may do to the Israeli Air Force. And we can all look at Ukraine to see how that goes when you have zero air cover even when fighting militarily inferior enemies, zero air cover doesn't exactly do you very much good. Um, but in other news, though, the UN urges Afghanistan's neighbors to have their borders open to the Afghan migrants. So, let's see. The UN wants Afghan's neighbors to keep their borders open. Greece and Turkey have already put up barricades and troops to s curb the flow and control the flow of migrants in. Uh, Iran, as far as I know, has done not too much. Um, Russia has said no and strong-armed all of Central Asia to say no as well. So we have very conflicting... Uh, a very conflicting situation on the international scene where mul different entities, multiple different entities, are giving very different answers on the issue of who's taking these migrants. Greece says no. Turkey says no. Russia has spoken for all of Central Asia and said no. And I doubt that I doubt the Russians will allow the migrants to walk into Azerbaijan or Armenia either. So they've effectively spoken for the Caucasus as well. I'm pretty sure the Chinese aren't going to let them in either. Uh, there's a narrow corridor where Afghanistan has a border with China. So, but I don't think the Chinese are going to let that happen. Especially not what's going down in Xinjiang, which is the region of China that you would walk out into if you were to cross that border. So China probably has said a very quiet no. Pakistan, 
I'm not entirely sure. I haven't seen anything about it. Um, but if these migrants are going anywhere, they're either going to Pakistan or Iran. So, depending on the status of the Pakistani border control, there might be uh, a decent bit of those waves of refugees heading to Pakistan. But if we're all being honest with ourselves, they're heading to Europe. So, but there's roadblocks. Very divided scene uh, internationally. Uh, and by divided, I mean more and more people are saying no. <laughs> and very more and more people are refusing to say anything back to that. So, I do believe open borders as a concept is coming to a very slow end. That, that's the observable. Very, very slowly, that as thing as a concept is coming to an end. But it doesn't seem like the UN is seeing that. But very interesting development nonetheless. Um, and lastly, we have the Malaysian king, Al-Sultan Abdullah. Uh, he is currently debating whether or not to name slash appoint a new prime minister for the country. Uh, as they've been in a political crisis with no leadership for a while. And he was now debating whether or not he should use his power as the king to appoint, basically, a new prime minister. But the controversy and the concern about this move, which is why he hasn't done it yet, is about overreach and abuse of power. Because... He has already, at this point, named a sitting president. He'd already appointed the sitting president of the country. So the concern amongst people is that if he does that and names the new prime minister, well, he's effectively just ruling by decree rather than allowing, uh, say, a more democratic process to determine these representatives uh, and these people in the government but then it's like what do you do when you can't get a governing coalition and you have no leadership other than yourself but you're technically not allowed to do the things that the prime minister and the president uh, have the authority to do so it's either he appoints them and lets someone who is supposed to have the powers of that role fulfill it or he steps in and does it himself and he's the king, so he can basically do whatever the hell he wants. On top of having the legal authority of either a president or a prime minister. So, very complicated situation in Malaysia. And a very interesting conundrum that you don't really think about. In most modern times, where most monarchies in general uh, really don't exist. As far as I know, even the Queen of England doesn't necessarily have that much power. Um, and the, the monarchies in the Arab world usually are much more reserved in how they exercise power over their government. And I say reserved in that they, they like staying in the background. They like to stay in the background. They do what they want, but they like to avoid flack for policy. You know, 
Most of the time it's successful, other times it's disastrous, but that's sort of what you see in, like, say, Saudi Arabia. Meanwhile, Iran has a shot. But very interesting conundrum that they're in. And it'll be interesting to see if they find a way out of this. But now we move on to the meat. We move on to the meat. And we'll get to it in just a minute. All right, let's get into the meat. Now, I'm sure you all saw this coming. But I'll say it. Anyway, the rest of the episode is all about Afghanistan. It's all Afghanistan. Nevertheless, I will do my best to keep it engaging and hopefully not boring as I'm as I bet everyone's just been blasted with non-stop coverage of Afghanistan all week. So, let's start off the new week by blasting non-stop coverage of Afghanistan, shall we? <laughs> and we'll start with the fallout of the Afghan debacle. And I guess that really that's just the header for what we're talking about because we're really going to start by talking Russia and China and some of the actions they've taken um, and the maneuvering they're doing around this issue. Now these two have taken to Europe. They've taken to Europe on major diplomatic meetings. Russia met with Angela Merkel of Germany, Putin of Russia, I should say, met with Angela Merkel of Germany. I believe this is the last time they'll be meeting, because Angela Merkel's stepping down. But he met with her, and Wang Yi met with, I believe, the Italian foreign minister. Um, and what happened in these meetings was um, pretty interesting, I should say. Uh, Putin, in his meeting with Angela Merkel, president of Germany, he put an emphasis on realpolitik when coming around to the issue of Afghanistan, because uh, they talked about a number of things, but when they got to Afghanistan, he brought up realpolitik. And basically that's realism in politics, uh, a concept that ironically enough, was invented by the Germans. Uh, so, he's now lecturing them on realpolitik, the irony, and the very subtle humiliation, because Merkel and Putin don't actually like each other, but, you know, they're very professional in their interactions. So, he did this, and he also put an emphasis on his and Russia's rejection of what they call humanitarian interventionism. Uh, so basically, sending in military intervention because of well, humanitarian reasons because they don't work. It doesn't work. You send the troops in and they just get stuck there trying to impose values on other people who don't necessarily share those values um, and they resist and then you stay there and they resist more and it doesn't necessarily help in the long run and you can sort of see where he would come from with that in what's happening in Afghanistan as the Taliban's in charge now the Taliban was in charge 20 years ago 
humanitarian interventionism knocked them out of power, and now they're back. Now they're back, and they're taking the country back to the way it was, roughly the the way it was before they were taken out of power by the interventionism. And now we're all sitting here asking ourselves, what was the point? 2,400 troops dead. Thousands of citizens now stranded in Afghanistan because our administration messed up the retreat so bad that they pulled the troops out before the civilians, which was uh, slow to say the least. And we're all having this, and by we, I mean everyone else, is having a crisis of confidence. Um, and I'll sort of get to that as well, because that's one of the major things that I noticed uh, since last episode. And we'll talk about that, the little the panicking going on between people in the political sphere on this issue. And a lot of the nonsense that I've seen from you know my point of view... So we'll, we'll get into that. But I, I thought it was interesting that he, Putin brought these things up in his meeting with Angela Merkel as a sort of subtle jab at the United States and NATO for doing this and then failing. And he's basically saying it was always going to fail. Uh, and then there was China. China, when talking to Italy's... When, when in Italy, China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, he uh, stated, and this is a pretty long and hefty quote because I had to grab all of it to get the full context, um, he says this, It is imperative to put an end to the irresponsible policy of imposing outside values on others to the desire to build democracies in other countries according to other nations' patterns without regard to historical, national, or religious specifics, and totally ignoring the traditions of other nations. We know Afghanistan, he's talking about China, he says we know Afghanistan, and we know it well enough to understand how this country functions, and have had the opportunity to learn firsthand the extent to which trying to impose unusual forms of government or social life on it is counterproductive. There has not been a single time when socio-political experiments of this kind succeeded. All they do is destroy states and degrade their political and social fabric. Uh, he says a little bit more. But that's sort of the key component of what he said. That's, that's the meat of what he said. And can you blame him for saying this? He's literally described the American experience in Afghanistan. The 20-year the, the American experience in Afghanistan summed up in a quote. A very, very long quote, but a quote. And... What can you what, what can you say to that? I, I mean, there's lots of people who are who don't like China and look for many ways of trying to discount everything they say, especially 
when it comes from the like a foreign diplomat or one of their propaganda agencies which are really just mouthpieces for the Chinese Communist Party but when they say things like this what do you what, what can you say to that no we were there for a, a actual purpose well what's the purpose did you did it work did we succeed cuz as far as I can see now, and my, my neighbors are uh, doing something in the background, but uh, I don't, I, I don't know what they're doing, but they're doing it very aggressively. But um, what, what do you, what do you say to that? What do you? No, we had a reason to be in Afghanistan. Well, what was the reason? We were stopping terrorism. Oh, well, did you stop it? We were, we were hunting Osama bin Laden. Oh, but you got him, and he was in Pakistan. Well, we don't want this to be used as a base of terrorist operations. Well, okay, but that's a very different goal than what was advertised when you got in and now you've been forced to leave because no one wanted to be there and now you're right back to worrying about it being a hotbed of terrorism, which I'm not necessarily convinced it will be. Um, I could be wrong. I think, at least for the time being, the Taliban are going to be more concerned about locking down their control over the country and quashing resistance, which is probably going to mean ter other terrorist organizations, you know, like actual terrorist organizations, not just the government of Afghanistan being called a terrorist organization. But for the time being, while they look inwards, I don't necessarily believe that they're going to be a hotbed for terrorism, especially with Russia and China there to sort of back them up and prop up the Taliban as opposed to the Afghan government, which is probably going to be a much more stable regime, uh, the Taliban. And that's not necessarily me saying that their morals are good, but me saying that if they were able to, they were, they were the government of Afghanistan over 20 years ago, and they stayed as a co they stuck around as a coherent force for 20 years when they controlled basically none of the country so now that they're back in power after all of that they stuck it out so they obviously have the resilience and now they have the backing of their neighbors so i see the taliban for better or worse as being a a regime that's going to stick around for a while in some way, shape, or form. So, the terrorism hotbed thing, I don't necessarily be, see as being the case. But then, what's the reason to be in Afghanistan? What's the reason? My, my answer to that is, though there is no reason, but there are lots of people that I see trying to find one and scrambling to find one even though just months ago everyone was saying yeah we should get out of Afghanistan but now when this has become the reality everyone is suddenly right back to where they were in 2001 we gotta go get them we have to we have to go get them we have to go fight them over there so we don't have to fight them over here all of that same nonsense which I was too young to remember at the time. Uh, I was, I was a little baby. But um, 
we're right back to that. Which does give me concerns about the direction of my country. And I'll get into that uh, in a moment. But we have this maneuvering being done by Afghanistan's neighbors, namely Russia and China, who have made great gains. All right, The Russians in particular have made excellent gains. I talked about uh, how swiftly they took over Central Asia. They locked down Central Asia almost as fast as the Taliban locked down Afghanistan. And pretty soon, they're probably going to... Probably gonna get a deal from the Chinese. Say, hey, would you like some infrastructure? Just sign right here. Just sign here, here, and here. Sign the data line right there. And congratulations, you're a part of the Belt and Road, buddy. You have lots of rare earth in your country. We'd be more than happy to develop it for you if you just sign here, here, and here. It joins the Belt and Road. And truth be told, it'll probably be um just the sort of thing Afghanistan needs, you know, for development, except you don't get other people trying to impose their ideology onto you. Now, there's always concerns of what the Chinese actually want with you, as there are with the United States these days, but I think they might go for it as a way of putting the, bringing the country back together Similar to how after the Civil War, we had people working on the Transcontinental Railroad, uh, which, had, which had been approved during the Civil War, because uh, it, it was torn between should it be in the North or should it be in the South. But when the South seceded, well, I guess you're doing the North now. So we had infrastructure projects that brought the country together because were, people were working towards a common goal. We may see the the Afghanis, and by that I mean the Islamic Emirate Afghanis, go for the infrastructure provided to them by China, and then China makes off with a great deal of influence now, uh, and they do just as well for themselves as the Russians have, making off from this crisis. Not entirely sure what the Iranians are gonna do, but I'm sure they'll they'll want a friend on their border. So, and they have the potential to get one because it's not it's not like the Taliban is overtly hostile towards Iran. It's not like the Iranians uh, pitched in to keeping the Taliban down during the American occupation. I, in fact, I see a cordial relationship between Iran and the Taliban. And that's just the sort of thing Iran uh, could use. Because they're preoccupied in their West. Uh, they're preoccupied expanding in their West, I should say. Uh, to a great deal of success. But success can be undermined when you have a second front to worry about. But I don't think they'll have a second front to worry about. Because Afghanistan's going to be looking inward. And the Taliban isn't necessarily hostile to them. And they're not necessarily hostile to the Taliban. So the countries around Afghanistan are more, very much more easily dealing with the transition of power than the people who are hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from Afghanistan. That's another one of the interesting things that I've noticed about this whole situation. The people who live next to Afghanistan 
are not necessarily concerned about who's in power as much as they're concerned about potential migrants and waves of refugees. And they put troops on the border. Uh, and in Russia's case, they put troops on other people's borders. <laughs> they put troops on other people's borders to keep this from even getting close to Russia. And for those who don't know, Central Asia is huge. Like, just the region from Kazakhstan down to Tajikistan and Turkmenistan, that is, I believe, roughly or very close to the size of the United States. Like, the whole of the United States, that is huge. So you're talking a massive buffer that the Russians have established for themselves by putting their troops on other people's borders uh, with Afghanistan. But um, all the people there, though, uh, not just the Russians, but all the Central Asian countries who have obliged to go along with Russia aren't concerned, necessarily, with the fact that the Taliban are in charge. The Chinese and Russians have accepted the Taliban's delegation to them. Iran's probably going to be friendly with them. Pakistan will come around at some point. Not entirely sure how they feel on the matter, but they're not necessarily hostile. So there's that, which is kind of a lot to ask for, just further to the west. So you're talking about all of Afghanistan's neighbors being more or less perfectly fine with the fact that the Taliban is in charge now, and their concern is the people leaving, not the people in charge. Whereas, say, here in the United States or in Europe, um, the concern is instead uh, who's governing Afghanistan and deliberately trying to take in more and more refugees and migrants. So the exact opposite outlook, where the countries around Afghanistan don't care who's in charge and will work with who's in charge, but they don't want the migrants, Europe and America care a bit too much about who's in charge while opening the border to the migrants. A very, very peculiar contrast uh, that I've actually only just now noticed while recording the episode. But that's just because there's a, a whole bunch to think about on the issue. But um, that's sort of the foreign aspect of this. But now we take a bit of a shift and we're going to talk about home. I haven't talked about home in ages because every time <laughs> every time I talk about home it disappoints me um, and divides people. But I don't think people are all going to be all too divided on this issue. Everyone's pissed. <laughs> I think I think the country's as united as people like to pretend that we're not, uh, and probably even more united uh, than we've been in a while on an issue just off the rhetoric surrounding an issue, let alone the sentiment behind it. Because we all have the same sentiments on a lot of the problems that befall our country, um, but have radically different ways of viewing how we should solve it. But on this issue... <laughs> People are uh, in agreement. 
people are in agreement, and the only people that aren't in agreement are the news, and even they are closer to being in agreement with the rest of us than we've ever seen before. We talked about how there was an interview, uh, I think it was CNN, I think it was CNN, where they brought this guy on, and they were talking about Biden's speech, right? And they said he didn't run from it, he owned it, and then the guy that they brought on basically roasted them for saying he he says this and then blames everyone else. It was, yeah, we haven't seen something like this in a while. I'll just say that much. Everyone's upset with this man, even the people who voted with him, because of how he did it. And that's the universal thing. The disagreement is how he did it, not that the fact that he pulled out of Afghanistan. The disagreement is that you pulled the troops out before you got the squishies out. You know, the, the civilians, the citizens, the U.S. citizens, the embassy staff, and the collaborators, the Afghan collaborators who worked with us and will probably get beheaded or shot by the Taliban when when the Taliban finds them. So, yeah, people are upset. So, ah, not too worried about dividing anyone on this. Not that that keeps me from talking about home. It's just I have a penchant for noticing the things around me. But, we're talking about home. So, we're going to talk about the panic in D.C. There's a major panic going on uh, that's more evident by the lack of your ability to see it. And that is the Afghan crisis has... It has basically, uh, how do I say, shattered my government. Not the confidence in it, although that's technically true now at this point, uh, a week later. But the situation has shattered the cohesion of my government um, in a way that I didn't think we were going to see, at least not for a while. I thought it would take a different party being in control of one of the houses of Congress for this to happen. But um, instead, it's this crisis that have divided everyone within the administration. Uh, and they don't know what to do. They really don't know what to do. Because we have thousands of American citizens who are stranded in Afghanistan. Um, which is itself a mess. And... Is probably going to be pretense used by them to drag us back into Afghanistan. And all the people who said, oh, oh goodness, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get to, you know, no, we're going to, all the people who talk about how you can't leave because there's no exit strategy, uh, but those people never come up with an exit strategy, even after 20 years, those people are looking at this and saying, see, we're right, you, sh you need an exit strategy, you can't just leave, you can't just have blind interventionism. You gotta, you gotta find some way. Wouldn't you rather have some troops in Afghanistan to prevent this? As though having troops in Afghanistan, as though removing the troops was the problem, not removing the troops before the civilians, which is the actual problem. Um, lots of really weird arguments and justifications being made for this situation. But we have that mess there have been sanctions placed on the islamic emirate of afghanistan and their assets have been frozen and their government is the current 
the girl, goodness, it's, that's so much of a mess that I'm trying to wrap my head around just how big it is, but, um, we're just gonna, I'm just gonna go as I go and try to get it all, because there's a bit, there's quite a bit, um, we, our government has imposed sanctions, I've said that, they've frozen the assets of the Islamic Emirate, I said that as well, um, but they're also currently trying to figure out what new sanctions they're going to slap on uh, and how they're going to go about it. Are they going to do it people or are they going to do the whole nation? Are they going to do specific uh, people who've done specific crimes or it's just going to be blanket across the entire Taliban government and all the fighters within the Taliban. They're just going to sanction them all to which the pretty sure the Chinese and the Russians won't care too much. And those are the only neighbors Afghanistan has that matter. But, um, so sanctions are being placed and debated on how to make them worse. Biden, uh, as I sort of alluded to when I talked about the CNN bit, um, Biden gave a 10-minute speech and an interview with ABC's uh, George Stephanopoulos, I believe it was. Uh, he gave another speech uh, talking about the situation. Uh, never took questions, like, Except for that one speech at the end, he did before he took off. <laughs> he disappeared with his staff saying he was taking a long weekend in Delaware uh, in the middle of this debacle. Um, none, neither of those speeches made him look good. In fact, I'm pretty sure all they did were make more people upset with him. Um... Because people, people were upset with the first speech because he basically blamed everyone else for the failure. And I say the blame goes with the administration because, and I'll, I'll keep saying it, we were going to be out in May, May 1st. That was the original withdrawal date established by Trump. We were going to be gone by May 1st, but Biden administration pushed it back by almost four months and they failed to get the civilians out before they got the troops out. So for four months, on top of the time that we should have been pulling out anyway, like we should have been doing these withdrawals of the US citizens, of Afghan collaborators, of the, of the embassy, we should have been doing that in the lead up to May 1st anyway so you delayed that by four months and didn't even like extend the process to make it like a, a bit more orderly or more leisurely instead of looking like uh like if there was some sort of panic less maybe that would have looked like if we tried to get out by may but we would have been out by may but instead of doing that we wait till two days before for the U.S. Army to completely disappear from Bagram Air Base and then Kabul Falls within a week. And now people are stranded there. Like, the most slow and incompetent way you could have possibly done this withdrawal is exactly the way the administration chose to do the withdrawal. We have conflicting reports uh, between Biden and his staff saying that the FBI said this, the FBI didn't say that, they, they said 
they said that the Taliban wouldn't be able to take it over. Then they said they would be. Then the FBI comes out and says, no, we told you that they could. Um, then the generals come out and say completely different things. It's been a mess. It's been a complete mess. And again, uh, after it all, Biden has disappeared. He's gone to Delaware. Kamala Harris, meanwhile, uh, has been active, very, very active in avoiding the blame. Uh, having supposedly, she's supposedly been quoted as saying, they're not going to pin this shit on me. And that was before vanishing herself. Um, so the president's gone. The vice president's gone. Uh, the FBI has some explaining to do. Uh, the press secretary came back a uh, day after Kabul was taken by the Taliban. She came back, answered a few questions, then shortly thereafter seemed to have discovered how to perform the very same disappearing act herself for a few days. I, I'm pretty sure she's back now, or maybe she's not, and she... It's a mess. And with the administration... Goodness... With an administration of magicians, um, the Pentagon has ironically ended up being the only part of the government who's coughing up information. And that is just wild. That is just wild. These are the people we're getting our news from uh, with regards to what the government knows about the shit. Because it is a shit show. It's, it's, it's a, a mess. It's a mess, and that's understating it, because there are literal lives on the line. American citizens are stranded, and there's no response. People are stranded. The withdrawal was botched in the worst possible way, and people are asking questions now. How do you fuck up that bad? And no one knows. No one knows. They, there was a question being asked of, I think it was General Milley. They say, why didn't you Why didn't you keep Bagram Air Base open? He goes, I was given orders to defend Kabul. I was given orders to defend Kabul. What can you say? He, he defended Kabul uh, until he didn't. And he pulled the troops out before the civilians. So now people are talking about putting troops back in. To secure the airbase because this has been the worst possible way you pull out of a country. My concern is that this mess, and I'll keep calling it a mess, all right, because uh, that's sort of sort of the best thing I can call it. Uh, my vo- I don't know, I don't know if I have the vocabulary to go beyond a mess, a debacle. Uh, a blunder, a mess, an absolute mess. But I don't see how putting the troops in. I don't. If they put the troops in, I don't see them getting out. I'll, I'll say that. I don't see the troops ever getting out again. Because the thing I'm seeing people take away from this. Um, is that see? This is what happens when you try to pull out. You have to leave. You have to leave some troops there, and that is the most annoying thing 
uh, for me to come out of this situation is people coming to that conclusion of all things, not that maybe we should, you know, get the civilians out before you pull the troops out, like a normal person with common sense. But, um, that's, that's one of the takeaways from other people. Not my takeaway. I'll, I'll sort of get into my takeaway, which can be summed up in, we should have never been there, but I'll get to that. Um, so everyone's disappearing. The Pentagon's give, coughing up answers. I think the press secretary is back, but I'm not entirely sure. It's just tiring. Uh, but... What what more can I say other than it's devolved into a even greater mess than I thought it was going to be? Um, and my main question in light of this is how? I don't get it. How? Because I, I know I keep saying this every time we bring up withdrawing from Afghanistan, and I brought it up just a couple minutes ago. But we were, we were supposed to have left on May 1st, not on the 31st of August. So you're talking four extra months and no plan was thought up to get people out with four extra months. No plan at all? I don't see it. I, I don't see it. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm on the verge of just saying that this is some deliberate effort because I really don't see because Biden came in office in January 20th May 1st uh, if, if we just discount the rest of January and say he was settling in that still gives you February, March, April three months to oversee the withdrawal, he pushes it back by four, so then that's, what, May, June, July, August, that's seven months that we should have been going through the withdrawal phase. We should have been wrapping things up at the very earliest. We should have been wrapping things up in June. That we should have been getting close to finishing in June, putting the finishing touches on the withdrawal in July, crossing I's and dotting T's in August, and then by September, you just pull the troops out and blow up the bases. That's where we should have been. On on a reasonable time frame, reasonable time frame. We'll, we'll just give the benefit of the doubt and say we needed the extra time. The, the extra time was there, so how are we in this mess now? Where the civilians are left behind. Because you pulled the military out first. Why weren't the civilians evacuated in May? Or in June? Or in July? Or in August? In early... How? I don't, I don't see it. This has, it has to be deliberate. It has to be. There's no way that these people are that dumb. I just... No. That's... We're we're beyond that. There, this is deliberate. I'm I've made my decision now. This is deliberate. This is deliberate. There's you can't mess up that bad by accident. You just can't. There's so many points at which 
you'd have to choose to mess up to get here because even by accident even by accident you're talking four extra months seven months in total the process was would have already been started before trump left because he got the deal and arranged the date before the election so we're talking that you're talking more months of what should have been a withdrawal on top of the time that biden was in office so there's just no way that this is an accident. There's no way this is just incompetence. I say it's deliberate. And you know what? I'm standing by it. It's deliberate. There's, we're, we're beyond probability of accident for this. I say it's deliberate. They want to keep the troops in there. And they're going to use this mess of people being stranded there. And you can already see it. Well, we should put troops back in to get them out. We got it. We got to get them out. We should put the troops back in. Put the troops back in. We need to keep some troops in Afghanistan. You can already see it. You can already see it. It's the, what do they call it? Manufactured consent. And they're using the lives of people to do this. It's a whole mess. And they're probably going to do it. They're probably going to get through with it. We're probably going to have troops back in Afghanistan. And then they're never going to leave. They'll be like, see what happened when you try to leave Afghanistan? I can see it now. Uh, and you know what? I said it would happen. I I said it would happen. I said way back when they first negotiated. Well, no, I said way back, back when we were coming up to that May 1st deadline to get out. I said... I don't think he's going to get out by May 1st. I hope he does. Well, I don't think he will. Then he pushed it back. I was right. Then I said, I bet something's going to happen and they're going to use it as justification to keep the troops in. And lo and behold, here's the justification. Thousands of stranded Americans who, again, have been left behind on purpose. Because you don't just accident, you don't just forget your own citizens when you're pulling out of a country, you don't just pull the military out and leave the civilians behind when you have plenty of time to get them out. Seven months bare minimum is what he had to get the civilians out and the administration chose not to. So this is deliberate. This is very deliberate. You can call me conspiracy theorist, but you can you try to explain to me how you have an oversight like that for seven months. Deliberate. Here's their Cassus Balli to get the troops back in and keep them there forever. And they're using the lives of American citizens and the lives of some of the Afghani people to do so. They're playing with people's lives. But uh it's 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 a mess. I'm almost as surprised by how bad that oversight was as I was by the Taliban Blitzkrieg. Which took me off guard, because I didn't think they were going to do it that fast. I had full confidence, but I didn't think they were going to do it that fast. Uh, if you couldn't tell by the end of last week's episode, where I was just repeating <laughs> that I was shocked. Because I was. Because I was. I had to end the episode, because I was just saying the same thing over and over. Um, and luckily I had finished saying what I needed to say by the time I got to that point. But I was shocked. And now I'm more shocked, um, and I've come to the conclusion that this is deliberate. 
This is deliberate. Um, but Biden, in the midst of this deliberate debacle, is catching more flack right now than a B-17 with no escort. And uh, you know, he earned it. He earned it. Seven months, bare minimum, and you left the civilians behind. He's catching a whole lot of flack right now. And I gotta say, do you miss him yet? Because I do. This wouldn't be happening with my nigga Trump. We would have been gone in May. The civilians would have been out. And then you pull the military out. Then you blow the bases up. Simple. Common sense. You could go up to anybody on the street. You can present them with a scenario. You're the president. Alright? Well, you, you walk up to them and say, you're the president. Here, you, you have to evacuate, you have to evacuate, say, Los Angeles, alright? You have children, you have a people, children, you have the sick people in the hospitals, you have disabled people, you have all these different groups of people, you have the elderly, you have sick people, you have nurses, doctors, firemen, policemen, and you have the military. Say San Francisco's being invaded by insert foreign force here. They're being invaded by the aliens. You have all these people and you have the troops. You have to evacuate the city. Who what in what order do you evacuate people? No matter what order they came up with, who no matter who was first, second, third, or fourth, or eighth, the troops would have been at the very end of that list. Because that's common sense. You, you got to hold the line with the troops. And then when everyone's out. Then you get the troops out. Common sense. So. When you have people. in Who are actually in that sort of situation. Who. Leave the civilians behind. That they know were there. Mind you. It's not like they didn't know. It's not like no one told them. When they decided to pull troops out. You can only you can only look at that and say that's deliberate. And I say it is. Who I miss forty five. But speaking of him, he did say that the twenty fifth amendment would come back to haunt Biden and with Kamala nowhere to be found, and his staff derelict in their duty beyond and also beyond the prying eyes of the press, most of them. Uh, and his political allies, the Democrats, refusing to say a word in his defense, Biden has been and is truly isolated. Not even the news is running defense for him like they were just a year ago. And again, you can see that in the interviews and some of the segments they've done covering Afghanistan and covering his speech. Then. That is nowhere near the level of protectiveness that they had during the election cycle. So, Biden's in trouble. Biden's in some deep trouble. And we'll, we'll have to see where all this goes. But it honestly doesn't look well for Biden. There's talk of the 25th Amendment. And there's increasing uh, questions regarding his mental health. And calls for him to take a cognitive test, which I don't think are going to go well for him either.
and uh, I think I think they're gonna do a, a legal coup of this match. They're gonna get rid of him. Kamala's staying in staying in the shadows, away from the prying eyes, while they have Biden out in front, taking out all that flack. And Kamala Harris is gonna come in like a like a BF one hundred nine and shoot down <laughs> the Joe Biden B B seventeen, and he's gonna go. Aah. And then she's gonna be the new president. <laughs> that's what I. That's what I think is gonna go down. And just a matter of watching to see the specifics on how they go about this. Cause I think they're gonna stab this man in the back. They're gonna stab him harder than Caesar got stabbed. And we'll see where that goes. I mean, is it interesting? Yeah, but I prefer if things didn't go this way. <laughs> Um, but while we're, we've talked a whole lot about the negative though, one of the good things I've seen come out of this debacle is a sharp increase in anti-interventionist sentiments, uh, and a desire to focus more on home. So right up my alley, right, right into my, right into my, what, what do I call this? My safe space. <laughs> right into my safe space my my right into my element this is i live for this maybe one day they'll even mention the word isolationism i i don't know i don't know if they'll they'll say it yet i don't know if they'll say it yet but i think i think i'll start to hear the word but um very very welcome development, I'll say that much. But, um, and it's those increase in anti-interventionist sentiments and an increase in the vocality of those anti-interventionist sentiments that have led to people making blind justifications for interventionism. See, this is what happens when you try to leave Afghanistan. You have to keep some troops there. Very, very annoying to listen to. But I think, I think... The non-interventionist crowd is winning, and I like this development. Maybe, maybe then we'll take the extra leap and get out of Europe and Asia. Hopeful, very, very hopeful of me, but you know, hope and speculation is one of my specialties. So, there's that, and then there's the uh, kind of the obvious good thing of not being in Afghanistan anymore after twenty years. Um, but like I said, I'm pretty sure they're going to put the troops back in because they somehow did not somehow because they've blatantly decided to abandon the civilians so they can put the troops back in, uh, fight me. I'm standing by that, that you don't, it's impossible to mess up this bad by accident. I should say by accident, it's impossible to mess up this bad on purpose. Oh, you just open the doors to the worst possible calamities that shouldn't be possible. <laughs> and I say it's deliberate. But with the good comes uh, more bad. More bad. But, uh, uh, and you know what? I'll just speak on it. A concern that I have in the aftermath of this, uh, as I've observed the whole thing go down. One thing that I've seen is an excessive concern people now have with 
America's image around the world and America's credibility amongst our allies. Now, me being the isolationist in the room, I have no concern for either of those, and nor do I see the need for them. I don't see what other people's image of us has to do with how we conduct ourselves if we're not doing anything wrong, like being in Afghanistan. I don't see why we have to be concerned with how our allies, the, the credibility we have amongst our allies, because I'm of the opinion that they should defend themselves, not us. They should defend themselves. We shouldn't be defending them for them. They should defend themselves. And we can just be on friendly terms and trade. That's my stance. I don't see the need for us to be in Europe, the Middle East, Asia, Africa. I don't see the need for that. So I approach this from a completely different wavelength than everyone else in the political and geopolitical sphere. But, that being said, I am not blinded by my ideology, and increasingly, I'm seeing people obsess over exactly those two things that I don't really see the need to obsess about. And the way that this is obsession is being reflected is via an increasing emphasis on America needing to protect Taiwan which I believe is a, a whole other catastrophe waiting to happen if we do commit to that, uh, which people are really desperate to get us to commit to um, for reasons unknown beyond ideology and at this point, prestige. And, but I'll, I'll talk more on Taiwan later on in the episode. Um, but... In the aftermath of Afghanistan, more and more voices are popping up saying, uh, we, have to, we have to reassure our allies, we're going to be there for them. And you're seeing more and more um, emphasis on we have to defend Taiwan, we have to defend Taiwan, we have to defend Taiwan. Because in the aftermath of Afghanistan, the Chinese and their Global Times newspaper, which is sort of a propaganda piece um, slash mouthpiece of the Chinese Communist Party, so rather than necessarily being a news agency, it speaks sort of what the Communist Party thinks and conveys it in English for us to see. Um, they've The Chinese use Afghanistan to make the argument that Taiwan is next. And, well, they don't use it to make the argument that Taiwan is going to be next, but they use it to make the argument that when they come for Taiwan, the United States won't be able to protect them. And for a number of reasons, I do agree with that sentiment. And I'll actually lay out why I believe that getting involved in Taiwan is going to be a catastrophe later on. But that's what the Chinese are saying. And the anti-China crowd, um, who are very blind in their ambition to combat China on literally everything have decided we have to draw the line at Taiwan. We have to go Taiwan, Taiwan, Taiwan. Um, that's what I've been seeing. And people are scrambling, those people, they're scrambling to make the these distinctions between Afghanistan and Taiwan. 
you might have even heard something along the lines of it's different because Afghanistan was an occupation and Taiwan is an ally. Uh, that's sort of the generalized comeback and justification that I've seen. Uh, and by justification, I mean the differentiation, because it's not a justification of anything. It's just how they differentiate this, or at least they try to. Um, never mind that Taiwan is actually not an ally. They're on the rather short list of countries America isn't legally obligated to protect. That's that's the irony of the whole thing. They call Taiwan an ally, but they're literally not. They're just a country we're friendly with. And a country we don't even recognize as a country. So, um... But don't, don't think about that, alright? Don't think about that. That's, that's not what's important, okay? But, um... <laughs> but even without that, that false dichotomy of what Taiwan is and isn't, and how they're, it's different from Afghanistan, um, even without that specification of how Taiwan actually isn't an ally, because no one else seems to care, uh, this distinction that's being presented is, as far as I can tell, an incorrect one. Afghanistan may have been an occupation, but we had pro-American Afghans fighting with us, who were supplied with weapons and munitions against a hostile opposition um, who also had a, opposing claims on the same piece of land. Alright, they both had claims over the same piece of land, that is Afghanistan. We backed the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan and we were fighting the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, the Taliban. Taiwan, in the event of a war with China, would be, at its core, a pro-American force that we supply with weapons and munitions to fight with us uh, against a hostile opposition, China, with both parties laying claim over the same piece of land that is all of China. The Republic of China versus the People's Republic of China. So, at its core... On a fundamental level, the two, Taiwan and Afghanistan, would be literally no different. It, it wouldn't be anywhere near as different as people are currently trying to make it out to be. It's... The skeleton is exactly the same. The difference is the geography. Because Taiwan is an island. So it would be the Navy's problem instead of the U.S. Army, because Afghanistan is a landlocked country. That, that's the first real difference. And the second real difference is that China is a much bigger and much more capable adversary than the Taliban. And those would be the actual differences, but they still present a reality where the United States is going to lose. We're, we're going to lose that fight if we get into it, and no one has a real reason for us to get into it beyond ideology. So it's disturbing and annoying, but it's what I see. And this is what I feel we're going to have to contend with. Uh, this development, uh, which is best seen by the political personalities um, covering this topic, not the mainstream news, but 
the the news you get on YouTube from say good old good old Temple or somebody like Jimmy Dore or people of that nature, people who cover the news in similar fashion to the way I do, except they do it on a more daily basis, and they're more popular than I am. Oh, disgusting! <laughs> but they're pivoting towards Taiwan. Defend Taiwan, 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 and that concerns me. Because it seems that people are so worried about the opinions and the perceptions of peoples from other countries that they're rushing headfirst into yet another crisis in this desperate attempt to save face after the humiliation in Afghanistan instead of just leaving it alone. And even though everyone is thinking critically of the crisis in Afghanistan. Everyone's being super critical about that. No one seems to be thinking rationally at all about what getting involved in Taiwan actually means. About how would you even go about that or whether or not it's worth it. Because I can, I'm going to lay out why I think it won't be in a minute. This is a beefy episode, so may as well. These are the developments I see. No one seems to realize that defending Taiwan will be as unwinnable a situation as occupying Afghanistan indefinitely was. Instead, people are concerned more about prestige. How do other people perceive us? How, what's our credibility in the world? How are people gonna how are people gonna respect us as a nation? How are we gonna defend our allies? People are more concerned about that prestige and international standing and they're more content they're more concerned with those and they're gonna be content with going from one debacle to another. All to prove something to people whom we have nothing to prove. We have nothing to prove. But since everybody in my arena, uh, which is current events and geopolitics, since everyone, almost everyone, wants us in the debacle that will become known as Taiwan, um, and even fewer people than what? Even fewer people than the those who stood up against getting into Afghanistan are here presenting a counter-argument against getting involved in Taiwan. Like, people who think the way I do are, a, are an endangered species in the arena that we're in. Nearly endangered. Like, all I can find, all I have encountered going over topics like these... Uh, with regards to people who even come close to speaking what I speak, is uh, Lyle J. Goldstein. Uh, he's about, he's like the only voice speaking what I speak. He's the, he's the only one speaking my language on issues of Taiwan. I'm the only one on Taiwan. But I have my own perspectives. And I, I guess I'll lay them out. So, 
since everyone wants to talk Taiwan, we'll talk Taiwan. We'll make this episode even longer, why don't we? And we'll get to Taiwan and why China will step on them and we will lose if we try to intervene. We'll get into that in just a minute. So, let's get into this. Uh, China. China, China, China. They have been pushing for Taiwan. Uh, well, they've been pushing for Taiwan for a while now, but they're, they're slightly ramping up the propaganda that they're going to take it, which I think that they'll follow through on, and that they'll, and that they'll be successful. That, that's my stance on the issue. But they've been sort of amping up the rhetoric, so to speak. I talked about the Global Times using the situation in Afghanistan to convey that they will take Taiwan and that the United States won't be able to protect them. Um, many political personalities here are, as I also mentioned, are obsessing over those same optics surrounding Afghanistan, which is that the United States won't be able to protect its allies. I don't see why we have to protect them from literally everything and everyone. Why can't they protect themselves? I'm not allowed to ask questions, but <laughs> it's, that's what we see. That's what we see. And because China is bad, uh, everyone wants us to prove that we're going to defend Taiwan. And the reason I caricature them as just being China bad, therefore Taiwan, is because there's no real argument for us getting there, for us getting involved there. There is no geostrategic need unless you just believe everything that China does has to be countered by the United States in some way, shape, or form. But that is not healthy for a country. That's how the Soviets lost the Cold War in a nutshell, obsessing over everything the Americans did and trying to hard counter them at every possible point. And we did the same to an extent but we had a good economy and the Soviets, we had a good economy and we had the compliance of the states we were occupying. The Soviets had to occupy them in the more traditional sense and they had the inefficiencies of a centrally planned economy. The Chinese learned from that and they still have essentially, they have centralized economy. Just they let you do what you want. They're communists in that what you produce isn't actually yours, it's theirs, they just allow you to keep it for the purposes of economic growth. One of the key distinctions between socialism, capitalism, is not profit or the ability to make it, but who owns the means of production. Chinese are communists. They own your means of production, they've just chosen to let you reap the rewards of them for the purposes of economic growth. And now they are arguably the number one power. And if they're not number one already, the projection is that they'll be number one um, in 2028. And as they rise in this power and prominence, they have decided they're going to take back Taiwan uh, in the near future. Um, and everyone, and they're using Afghanistan as a part of their long propaganda campaign to sort of demoralize the Taiwanese and convince them that they're going to be taken over. And I'd say that that's not necessarily going to end up being propaganda as much as it'll end up being the political reality when it happens. 
but people have obsessed over this in my country and in Western countries in general, and they say, we have to do something about China. I have no interest in this debacle, which is what it will be, just based off of principle. I've made that clear. I don't subscribe to the crusade for democracy like others do. I see it as being problematic for us and a piece of the root cause for our constant and unwarranted intervention in other people's affairs. That intervention itself conflicts with my belief in national sovereignty, which is that if you have a country, then you decide how to run it, not someone else. And for a while now, many within my country, both in and out of government, have gotten it into their head that they have this divine right to decide for other people how they are to govern themselves and who their enemies and friends are. I don't agree. And I know how I would feel if some bum thought that it was his prerogative to come over to America and decide for me what my objectives are and what I have to do to achieve them and how I'm going to how my country is to be governed because there are a lot of countries that don't necessarily like this whole constitution thing and there are a lot of people in other countries who really don't like uh, uh, some of our amendments the second amendment being chief among them I appreciate my rights and I don't want other people stepping in who aren't even in this country going you know what you, you don't need that you don't need that just just accept our values and go F yourself I don't I would not agree with that if people came to my country talking that nonsense but I am almost alone in carrying that same principle forward to other countries. We shouldn't be doing what we're doing over there. But that's a mess. People will just have to learn the hard way, I guess, uh, why that's a bad idea. Um, and I just I just have to watch. That's really it, because I'm the, minor, the super-duper minority in this field. In, with regards to my beliefs on foreign policy. So I just have to... I can speak my mind, but I just have to sit back and let people learn the hard way why I'm right. <laughs> but I know how I feel. But unfortunately, many of my countrymen fail to see that nuance. But back to China, less on my ideology, we're talking China. Because everyone wants us to be involved in Taiwan... Uh, this is a sentiment that has been there for a while, uh, but has been greatly amped up by the humiliation in Afghanistan. People are concerned with our standing in the world, and they want some victory to repair our image, so to speak. And they've chosen the worst possible battleground to try to achieve that victory in. But I figured this would be a very convenient excuse to detail how I see the invasion of Taiwan going and why it is that I believe the United States, the, currently the most powerful military force in human history, would lose that fight. Why I believe we would lose. Because I'm pretty sure to a lot of people I sound like I'm just demoralized and defeatist when really I just don't see the need to be over there. But I have to address it because other people see some weird wacko reason why we have to be over there 
And because I live in this country, the consequences of those actions are going to hit me. So I best understand what's going on. I'd better figure it out. I can't tell what all the consequences are going to be. But I can certainly read a map and see that this isn't going to go well for us. So, without we're going to we're going to get into the invasion of Taiwan, which I'll just start by laying down some of these ground rule beliefs. I'll start that off by saying I believe China will be victorious in this endeavor. We'll just get that off right off the bat. I have observed people using emotion and ideology when discussing this uh, as a means of dismissing those who believe that China has the ability to pull this off. Oh, they're not a democracy. Oh, they don't have this. Oh, they don't have. They don't have a super carrier. They they can't possibly pull off an amphibious assault. They they don't have this. They don't have that. They're authoritarian. Oh, they they lose credibility and standing in the international world. I don't think any of those will play anywhere near as big a role as the people who talk about those think they will. Um, mainly because people disagree with China already, but they don't stop trading with them. Literal genocide in Xinjiang, people haven't stopped trading with China, United States included, so what's an invasion of Taiwan? I'll just, I'll just leave that on the table. Just leave that on the table, you can pick that up whenever you want, but it's there. It's there. Um, I believe they have the Chinese have the ability to pull this off as they are now. All right, let alone what they'll have in the near future. Um, I've made my ideological beliefs clear that I don't think we should be a part of this. But uh, in doing my best not to let ideology blind me, I have accepted that we're being dragged into this anyway, and that it is no fault other than our own, us living in America, this is what we've decided to do, so I gotta talk about it, and I gotta try to see it clearly. I will also go on to say, before I get into why I think this isn't gonna go well for us, that while China winning may impact people's perceptions of their ideology in ways both good and bad for the Chinese, ideology will not determine who wins. There's a big hubbub about what does the fall of Afghanistan say about democracy and confidence in democracy, this and that. Um, what, what would the fall of Taiwan say if we just let a democracy fall to authoritarianism? I, I don't think ideology is going to play as big a role in the fall of Taiwan as people are hyping it up to be. Alright? It might... The ideological difference might have repercussions later, but as far as the conflict itself, ideology is going to play a very minor role in who wins and loses. But, um, and given that ideology won't determine that, I will also go on to say logistics will. And all the logistics in this conflict will be working in China's favor. And due to the vast distances of the Pacific Ocean, all those logistical forces are going to be working against us. Not to mention public support, because I'm pretty sure the vast majority of the American people 
if the shooting started, would find themselves on my side of the fence um, and drop the whole interventionist immediately. That's what I think. And maybe in time I'll be proven right, but by then it's too late, you know. You're already at war, and Taiwan's gonna get uh, obliterated. But, that being said, ladies and gentlemen, at this time, I ask you to whip out your maps and pan over to the area east of China. As I detail to you how the Chinese will win the reclamation war for Taiwan. I'll give you a moment. Give you two moments. Give you three moments. Okay, we're just going to forget that the pause button exists. Or rather, we're going to acknowledge that it exists and we're going to get into this. So, how does it start? Mass amphibious assault. Mass amphibious assault. They have a massive merchant marine of... And by that, I mean, specifically, I'm referring to their massive militia that they have on the waters that they've used to harass people in the South China Sea with and try to establish claims and facts on the ground when it comes to the resources and the islands in the South China Sea. They will be used to screen the advance and they will be used as a meat shield to cover the troops. And which will present a moral dilemma to anyone who shoots at them because if you don't shoot at them they're going to get to taiwan if you do shoot at them you're killing civilians and you're the bad guy for doing that so right off the bat they're going to hit us with a form of warfare that muddies the water between who's right and wrong in the conflict uh to which i don't think the taiwanese are going to have as big of a problem with that as other people will now, uh, given that the Taiwanese would be fighting for their life, <laughs> I don't think, I think public support, uh, well, rather, public opinion of other countries will go out the door immediately for the Taiwanese. They won't care. They're being invaded. Um, now, if only we could have such similar sentiments uh, regarding prestige, but they're going to get hit with a mass assault. It's going to be huge. It'll be bigger than even what you're thinking now. Um, and I brought up Lyle J. Goldstein because he brought up something very interesting, which is that the Chinese military are going to use civilian boats. They're not going to necessarily use big, complex amphibious assault ships or landing ships, which is the, the boats you see in D-Day where they roll up to the shore and then the door hatch comes down in front and they walk out. They're going to use some of those, but the vast majority of the invasion force, Lyle argues, is that they'll just come in regular boats and they'll hop out the side. They'll, they'll come in hovercraft or speedboats. They'll come however they can, and they'll come in in force with huge numbers to completely overwhelm any defense that the Taiwanese can organize on the beaches. Uh, and at any point that they encounter resistance they'll just get bombed so that that's how it will start they'll have the chinese who are building carriers and even super carriers now will send their carrier battle groups out into the waters surrounding taiwan and they'll do a bit of a double envelopment they'll come from the north they'll send a, a battle group north and battle group south 
and they'll just cut Taiwan off by sea, which will keep them from exports and importing. The combination of carrier and land-based air assets, so the fighter jets the Chinese would be having take off from their carriers and from the mainland of China itself, would give China total air superiority over the skies of the island. Submarines would harass foreign vessels that got too close. The Chinese would use paratroopers um, uh, masked by the huge swarms of fighter planes that they will send over the island to soften it up. They'll send in the paratroopers when they do that. The marines will be screened by waves of standard troops, all of them coming via civilian craft that are just going to roll up to the shore of Taiwan and then they'll just hop out the side and some they'll try to drive the boat back. There'll be a guy in the boat driving it back and they'll just do that over and over. Um, to which, it doesn't matter what the Taiwanese do, they're not going to be able to stop all of those troops. There's not. There's going to be too many. Um, so, human wave offensive on the seas. Though, the Chinese will build artificial harbors. Uh, like, think about the Mulberry Harbors that were used in D-Day. The Chinese are going to bring those to the fight. And, and instead of trying to capture... Instead of only trying to capture existing port frontage, they'll just build their own ports, sail them across the straits to Taiwan, uh, and create a harbor where they will bring in heavier equipment. Of which, um, uh, they'll bring in heavy equipment, and anyone who tries to get in the way will be hit with overwhelming fire support that will be directed at every point of major resistance, keeping the Taiwanese from actually being able to put up a fight until you get to the cities. So on the coastlines, they'll just get obliterated. They'll get flattened and forced to fall back to defensive positions in the mountains that are in like the middle of Taiwan itself. Um, and as they do that to clear the area for these harbors to be brought in, the harbors, once they're established, will be used to bring in the heavier equipment. They'll bring in construction equipment. The Chinese will bring in air defense systems. They'll bring in armored vehicles like tanks and armored infantry fighting vehicles. They'll bring in trucks. They'll bring in logistical vehicles, uh, troop transport vehicles and whatnot. They'll bring in all of that. And the air. they'll make airstrips. They'll have people... And engineers brought in with the construction equipment, they'll clear out the area to make airstrips. And these airstrips will be cleared and made, which will effectively turn Taiwan into an unsinkable Chinese aircraft carrier. And these makeshift airstrips will probably be paved uh, properly, turning them into official airstrips, which will increase the capacity of them even, even more. And there's not going to be much the Taiwanese can do to stop that uh, without destroying all the construction equipment. Because the Chinese would just rebuild it. Uh, there will be helicopters used. Lyle also makes the argument that they'll use helicopters, not just amphibious assault ships. They'll use helicopters and airborne troops. And these helicopters will land at various points within Taiwan. They'll land 
on the airstrips as a part of the logistics to supply a steady stream of men into the conflict zone and carry wounded men out of the conflict zone at a rather speedy pace because the Chinese have plenty of helicopters for this purpose. And it won't be just a specific category of helicopter. They'll use all their assets. They will deploy all assets for this. Meanwhile, their air defenses will lock out U.S. air assets, uh, which will include cargo planes and helicopters. Uh, this will require special operations, probably, to deal with or disable for brief moments to even enable the needed air support to make resupply missions or bomb targets to bomb Chinese targets on the island. The Chinese will have total air superiority. And even if you take down those air defenses, uh, be it permanently or up or temporarily, you'll still have to deal with the massively outnumbering Chinese air force, which will be massive and will outnumber us. That will be an unavoidable obstacle. It'll lead to high casualties and will lead to failures of many of these resupply missions because you're not going to be able to supply Taiwan by sea. You're just not. Um, the air defenses will keep out the planes. Um, the Chinese Navy will, with the assistance of the Chinese Air Force, will be able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the United States Navy because they will be able to bring more aircraft to bear. Aircraft determine battles at sea more than just how many ships you have, which was made clear in the Second World War. So just because the Chinese aircraft carriers can't carry as much as, say, a U.S. supercarrier, or just because they can't launch planes as fast as a supercarrier, it doesn't mean as much when they can just rely on planes being scrambled from the mainland or from airstrips on Taiwan to compensate overwhelmingly for the difference in aircraft capacity between the Chinese carriers and the American carriers. And if the Chinese control the skies over that battle space, then you're looking at multiple supercarriers getting downed, American supercarriers, and they'll take with them all of the planes that are on board, which will be a humi another humiliation. Um of which uh, we probably won't be able to recover because it takes ages to build just one of those, um, let alone repair them, uh, which, and those are just regular maintenance repairs that we do with no damage to them from an enemy combatant. Very different from the carriers we had during World War II that were pretty easy to maintain and repair. The Chinese would have all the logistics working in their favor. And they would use, well, civilian craft to compensate for the dis the differences. Once they have those airships down and total air superiority, they can fly in big jumbo jets of people and supplies on top of the helicopters. It'll be incremental from boats to boats and helicopters to boats and helicopters with proper airstrips and harbors to boats and aircraft um, where you have harbors and whole entire airstrips and airports having been built in a matter of hours or days. And just constantly increasing their ability 
for supply throughput. And if they have to, they'll build a road from their landing base to whatever Taiwanese city they're looking to take. Be it the city in the south or Taipei, the capital city. And we'll be too busy getting obliterated at sea to help the Taiwanese. Uh, Any force we have on the island prior to the outbreak of hostilities will be stuck there. Unless they got out immediately and managed to get past the naval blockade imposed by China. Meanwhile, the makeshift installations um, that the Chinese use will also be used for anti-ship missiles. So on top of having air superiority and a sizable navy enough to go toe-to-toe with the U.S. fleet, there'd also be anti-ship missiles who they would be made more reliable in their targeting because they could probably depend on laser guidance of planes that the Chinese have in the airspace to guide them close enough to a U.S. naval ship to where the onboard targeting systems of those missiles could lock on and carry the bomb the rest of the way, the missile, the payload, and probably down a couple ships, maybe even a supercarrier if a supercarrier got hit enough or got hit in the wrong place and it goes down. Um, you're talking a tragedy, really. Uh, and on top of that, you'd be looking at Taiwanese cities that are being put under siege, modern-day siege, um, with no imports by sea or airlift, so n- nothing gets in or out of Taiwan, meaning the Taiwanese will starve. Millions of people will starve. The American forces stuck there will also starve, because they're not going to get rations. The Taiwanese have to import their food. And if you can't do that by sea, you get you got to try to do it by air. But if you can't do it by air either, because the enemy controls the sea lanes and the airspace above you, you're just stuck. You're just stuck with no food. Um, well, no new food, which means you're going to run through supplies. And those are going to be harshly rationed. But that can only go for so long in a country of 24 million people with limited agricultural capability. We'll just say that much. So, millions would starve, and potentially even die, due to starvation. The American forces on the outside would just have to watch in horror, as our main assets would be hard countered by what China would bring to the battle space. Uh, And all this would happen while China converted... Its military, its civilian factories over towards wartime production and outproduces us in planes, missiles, artillery, rockets, warships, helicopters, men, and bombs. We would suffer a humiliation that puts Afghanistan to shame. Tens of thousands of our troops would die needlessly. Needlessly. And we, and the aftermath of that, would either think, rethink the merits, quote-unquote, of interventionism, stop interventionist endeavors altogether, 
or, and this is the one I'm most afraid of, as I believe it may be the more likely scenario, or we look desperately for some opportunity to get revenge on China for that humiliation. And it'll be the birth of American revanchism, uh, which for my fellow non-French speakers, that means revengeism. That's the literal translation. Uh, and this is referring to the French mentality after getting humiliated by Prussia in the Franco-Prussian War, which led to the creation of the German Empire. And was one of the key factors in France's unwillingness to make peace with Germany, or even deal with Germany, in the lead-up to and during World War One, And their re refusal to be nice to Germany in the peace conference, and their refusal to be nice to Germany in the lead-up to World War II. They, the, the hereditary enemy is what they became known as. And should this happen, and should our troops get caught up in this unwinnable mess, I see that as being a viable path that America goes down, and it's not a good path. It just really isn't. And all of this for nothing more than prestige and ideology. Now, I like watching these sorts of games, but I'd really appreciate not being a player in them. Like, it's very interesting watching, say, Armenia and Azerbaijan go to war over something you would consider laughable. And I guess this is just the human nature of it all. When it's, it's funny when it's them, and then it's not funny when it's you. And I guess I'll just accept that for what it is. But this is a mess. At the very least, Azerbaijan and Armenia have a border that they can disagree on, and you can reasonably understand why they would choose war, why they would wake up and choose violence one day. You don't under you can't look at a map and understand why people in the United States would wake up and choose, you know what, we're just gonna put troops in Taiwan. And when the only response you get is because democracy, when you ask questions, you can only see a catastrophe waiting to happen. There's no real reason to be there. And it's, s democracy certainly isn't going to be a good enough excuse to the American people uh, should a conflict like this arise. And I see it as being a debacle waiting to happen. I do hope we can avoid these disasters, and I full-heartedly believe we can. I really do. I know it'll take some convincing to sort of get out of the old ways, well, not even the old ways, but get out of the ways we've gotten into since the end of World War II, sort of return to our isolationist roots, so I'd love that. I would love it if my country could go back to minding its own business, because we used to be at peace. For most of our time, wars were brief, and we knew what we were fighting for, and when the wars were over, we'd go back to being at peace. We wouldn't just chill out in other people's countries. And we had development that way. 
we were able to solve problems when we focused inwards. Sometimes we, we had to fight it out in the Civil War. But after the Civil War, we didn't just keep the troops in the South. We occupied them for a bit. We pulled out. And we got back together as a country. And we focused on what mattered. Developing ourselves into something better. And I do believe that something like that is is possible for us today. As much as other people in this space, geopolitics and current events, would like to believe that we're just caught up in the world's ways, I don't agree. I really don't. I think that the way we were in the past is much more of an option than people would like to believe. Um, but I do know also that the people of my country can be rather hard-headed, so probably he'll have to learn how to get back to that the hard way. Um, but maybe, just maybe, this debacle in Afghanistan, and if not, and hopefully not, but perhaps even Taiwan, will allow the people of my nation to rid themselves of the foreign entanglements that we're caught up in, that even lead us to talking about China going to war with Taiwan, and suddenly that means America, foreign entanglements in a nutshell. But perhaps the situation in Afghanistan will lead the people of my nation to renounce the foreign entanglements we're in so that we can finally know peace ourselves. And that will be absolutely beautiful. But, whew, it's been a long one. But I have nothing left. That's, oh, I, my throat is all raspy. And I'm tired of sitting in my chair. But, <laughs> It's been a long one, but we got it done. Said what I believe needed to be said, and that's all I got. I really hope you enjoyed this extended broadcast uh, where we talked really just about Afghanistan and things surrounding it and the fallout, but you already knew that this was coming, I'm sure. I mean, it's not like... I could ignore this. This is right up my alley. Uh, the geopolitics of it all. But yeah. Whew. That's all I got. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. That's all I got. But I hope you enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Whew. This episode has been long, but the world is changing. And we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you have been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, Servus.